Good evening and welcome to BAFTA. My name's Chris Majumda. I'm the chair of BAFTA's television committee uh, and I'm on the board of trustees. Welcome to this BAFTA masterclass, playing with form storytelling in documentary. Uh, and I'm absolutely thrilled and delighted to see so many people here today. And we've got a, a really stellar panel. Uh, and in a moment, I'm going to hand over to Kate Townsend, who is the director of original documentaries from Netflix, who's going to take us through this evening. But before we do that and introduce the panel, I just wanted to say a few words about BAFTA and what we do. Um, BAFTA is a charity. It's not just an awards-giving body, although we're in the TV and TV craft awards season at the moment. Um, we do events like this throughout the year uh, and all over the world. Uh, and many of those uh, events are recorded uh, in audio form or filmed. Uh, and all that amazing inspirational content is on our website, BAFTA Guru. So if you've not been on that site, please go on it. Because BAFTA is about two things for me. It's about excellence and it's about inspiration. And we have evenings like this um, throughout the year. Uh, and that's why I'm still involved after quite a few uh, number of years. Um, and I always walk away feeling really inspired and kind of connected to the craft and to the industry. Uh, and, and the point of these events is we share the insights and brilliant minds of, of filmmakers, of program makers, um, with you. Uh, I'm going to hand over now to Kate Townsend. Thank uh, you. Yeah. Um, well, look, thanks everyone for coming. I think it's it's kind of indicative of where we are in documentaries that we've got a full house here. So thank you on a is it Monday night for coming out. Um, so I feel, I think everyone here feels on the panel, it's a really exciting time for documentaries, um, both in form and range. Um, there's certainly different types of documentaries coming out. So this evening, we really want to be digging into you know, the, the new techniques, the challenges, the advantages of the world where we are now. Um, so before we dig into that with the panel, so what we're going to do is we're going to just talk um, broadly for a few 10 minutes or so, and then each of the, the guys here have got some clips. So we're going to be talking through specific projects for a while. Um, and then there'll be an opportunity at the end for you guys to ask some questions, and then maybe we can get out early and have a drink. Um, so, panel. Here is um, Ben Anthony, eminent director of um, recently of Grenfell, an year of British murder. You've just come back from... Have you been shooting today in America? Uh, yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Anything you can share? Um, a film for BBC Two about Keith Herring, an artist called Keith Herring. It's a bit different for me, but... Um, so that's a good changing gear for yeah, you, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. And Linda Billing is executive producer <laughs> at The Garden Productions, yeah. um, formerly commissioner many places, um, behind such things at Garden as Operation Live, yeah. which we're going to talk about later. Yeah. And Police Tapes. Good. Um, and in the middle, can't miss him, is David Glover. Um, David Glover being one of the founders of 72 Films that's already made massive strides in the industry with Trump and American Dream, the House of Assad. And previously, in the previous life, you were um, made a massive market channel for um, as a commissioner on many things, and you do a very good Ben Herzog impression. <laughs> do you want to do it now? A bit later. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Colette. Colette... Um, is uh, Colette Camden, director. You were many years, Colette, at the BBC, weren't you, in-house? Many, yeah. Many years. I remember feeling kind of quite astonished about how many 
great directors were still in-house at the BBC, but now you've spread your wings and have gone on to do great things in the outside world, like recently married to a paedophile, right? Yep. Which we're going to talk about later. Um, and at the other end, James Rogan, who I've had the pleasure of working with um, several times. Um, you want to meet your creative director of Rogan Productions, um, but yourself um, a fantastic director and an EP, executive producer, so recently behind Stephen, The Murder That Changed the Nation, as well as Gunshot. Um, so anyway, thank you very much all for coming. Um, that was my opinion at the beginning, that I feel it's an exciting place in documentaries. And just, I just wanted to have a, a few quick-fire questions, not massively quick-fire, but just go around all of you for a few questions just to gauge. Um, how do you see the documentary landscape at the moment? If you could just each chip in and be curious to see what, what you feel from your side. Um, I think it's incredibly healthy and uh, exciting place to be working and um, a world of opportunities. is just, uh, just a huge appetite for documentaries, as far as I can tell. Um, loads of platforms for films, lots of um, innovative filmmaking techniques kind of on show and emerging. I think audiences are very sophisticated when it comes to factual storytelling and that they can handle storytelling that perhaps might have felt very unconventional just a short time ago. So I think it's, it's sort of wide open, really, for filmmakers to, mm. to make their mark and, and to choose, you know, tell stories in interesting and different ways. Yeah, I, I think um, it feels like docs have become a bit more democratic. Um, I feel like it's just uh, more people can come to documentaries, more people can appreciate them. It feels like documentaries have suddenly turned its gaze outward to understand the audience's taste and the audience's needs um, and responding to an audience in a way that I don't feel that uh, as a genre it was before. I know that you know, as I was growing up through TV, I thought that documentaries were made in a quite niche way for quite clever people who probably didn't include me. And I think that's changed you know, mm. fundamentally now. Uh, and it feels that, uh, that the documentaries really are concerned with telling stories about all of us and for all of us. And that just feels really exciting. Mm. And David, even since your Channel 4 days, which how long have you been now? Is it three years, four years? About th th uh, three years now. Yeah. yeah, so how do you think that the landscape shifted and how oh, it's, I mean, it's changing massively fast, so fast it's almost hard to keep a handle mm. on it. But I suppose I kind of agree with everyone else that this is the most exciting time for documentaries at any time I've been in TV. Um, I think there's a kind of, you know, I think there's a trend that I'm particularly interested in, which is sort of uh, starting back in the day with the staircase, you know, being this kind of like, wow, it's like a box set, but it's a documentary. And then more recently, sort of the OJ series, sort of, which is a one-hour Channel 4 documentary would have been really boring. Mm. But as a seven-hour thing, it becomes a kind of masterpiece. And similarly, I mean, I know you know all these things, but like kind of uh, uh, making of a murderer, again, sort of turn the microscopic level of detail up. So it's like suddenly rather than you know, to the power of 10, sort of 10 hours on this. And suddenly it becomes sort of fascinating and addictive and interesting. And I think that there's been, people have been piling into that, which is exciting. But it's kind of what does that mean for Channel 4 or the BBC? It's kind of like the box set thing is, you know, or those kind of shows aren't necessarily such a natural fit for terrestrial broadcasters with adverts in the middle and all that sort of thing. And then it just feels like a kind of wild free-for-all, a bit like the world, sort of out of control, but a great time to be a documentary maker, you know, whether it's kind of uh, 
Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin or whatever the hell. Mm. You know, there's a kind of way, and similarly, it's sort of Apple and it's Amazon and Facebook want to meet. You know what I mean? It's kind of mm. it's quite hard to navigate, but mm. amazingly exciting. Mm. I think that's right. I think there's also a real um, bravery with commissioning, uh, crossing the genres. So introducing elements of drama into documentary and um, have feature-length documentaries that feel like they have very strong drama elements. I mean, this year we've seen American Animals. It was amazing. Mm. Um, Mark, Mark yeah. Um, but yeah, it feels like anything goes now, like you said. I think there's mm. real bravery there. Yeah. You got anything to add, Jane? I mean, there's a lot being said. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I would agree with everyone in the, in, in the sense that, obviously, people talk about this being the era of fake news, and documentaries are kind of an antidote to that. So, so I think that there's a feeling as a documentary maker that when people engage with your films, that they're really engaging. They're, kind of, they're quite grateful to them for going into lots of detail and really <coughs> explaining things. And 10 years ago, I think you'd, you'd have to kind of, in a room, sort of, sell the documentary you're making, whereas now when you speak to people, they're kind of like, oh, I can't wait to see that, and you know, I really want to understand how. So I think they, they have, they, they've really kind of, they've got a, a role now that is you know, more significant yeah. than they've ever had. I mean, some people in the audience may be sitting and think, well, of course, all you award-winning filmmakers are going to say it's an exciting time for documentary makers. And I just wonder if anyone's got a comment on what this new landscape would mean if you're starting out or a less experienced director as, as yourself, does anyone got anything? It feels like a bit of a double-edged sword. I mean, I think yeah. that it's, 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 you don't, I mean, when I started out, you know, you, you were completely sort of beholden to people giving you a chance. And I don't think that's the case anymore. I think now, with very limited technology, you can basically make some kind of film. Um, the, the, the problem is, there's a lot of people at it, and so I think it's probably quite hard to get noticed. Um, but... I think it's a positive thing that the actual tools to make documentaries are so readily available. And that means that if you feel the need to tell a story, you can do that. You might not necessarily make a living at doing it straight off the bat, but the, 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 yeah, so the opportunities to actually express yourself as a filmmaker seem to be there. Are there opportunities for it then to be heard? If you, you, know, you can make it. Yeah, I think you know, that, that, that there are places where you're, you, you can post your film on YouTube if you want, but the question is, is anyone going to see it? So, mm. so I think that, that challenge is how to, be, how to be seen and how to be um, visible in a very crowded space. Um, you'd like to think that, that somehow, magically, talent and ability will somehow sort of like rise to the top or sort of show itself, but I'm sure there's lots of brilliant people out there who are regularly posting stuff that isn't yeah. getting the hits they'd like. So... Mm. At least they're able to make films, and I think that's really important because they'll only hone their craft and get better and better as they, as they go along. Hmm. And, and just going back, because well, we can maybe pick that up on the q and I'm curious to see what, what the audience wants to follow. But you mentioned, David, a few of your key sort of, titles, but I'm curious to see in this new era what, what titles um, people... Titles, that's so American. Do you say that here? What, you know, what, things, what game changes in the last few years, um, in your opinion, in terms of... OJ was a game changer. Pardon? OJ. Well, I think sort of, what David yeah. said it was it was it was long and it took a story that everybody knew mm. and it, and it showed that you could tell that story and make it a commentary on our times as well as a, a kind of a thrillingly engaging tale about you know, a murder. So it, it, it kind of layered it created a sort of an expectation of layers in, in filmmaking that I think has you know, opened up a lot of space. Certainly, certainly thought about it a lot when, when I made the Stephen series. 
And it was also taken quite a bit from non-TV, from podcasts, from mm -hmm. things like Serial, yeah. um, or John Ronson doing Butterfly Effect, things like that, where you can hold with a story, you can come back to it, and you can flip-flop with the narrator mm. about, you know, a judgment on something that takes quite a long thing, or like Staircase, like you said, it takes, a, you know, that's a long trial there. Mm. So, yeah, I think we've taken a lot from that. I thought The Jinx was really um, a, a great series because it showed the edges of the filmmaking, which I think now people have a real appetite and understanding of in a way that perhaps they didn't before. And that is now a lot of films that you see, or not a lot, but you know, you see, you see the edges of the set and you see the kind of process and it's sort of self-referential in a way that feels like it's slightly sort of broken through the fourth wall a little bit in a way that opens up kind of... Um, opportunities to reference the making of the film in the story itself, which I think is really interesting. Mm. Um, I also think that um, The Arbor was a really important breakthrough because that felt Theo that Bernard, was... Yeah, because yeah, it felt that just completely um, challenged the audience to accept that something was verbatim true and real, but yet um, allowed the space to interpret it in a very visually striking, creative and interesting way. Mm. Linda, was anything that, that occurred to you I think and Jinx and Staircase, I think there's, yeah. there's a certain kind of, um, uh, the, the confidence in turning that, uh, attention to that detail and letting that, uh, take, pulling on those threads and following those through uh, to draw an audience in, just felt like it kind of split open what we understood documentaries to be and allowed us all to uh, re-engage with it and, and experiment with new forms. Mm. And, and some of those you've mentioned, um, Jinx particularly, um, and Cleo Bernard's Arbour, they, they, they did borrow a, a few tropes from drama. Um, and it does seem to be a trend, potentially, um, that, you know, that there's, there's more of a fusion and learning from drama for documentaries. So I just wondered, and it, it feels tonally and the way people are coming to these stories, potentially, that there's, they're not distinguishing, to your point, Linda, as much as they used to, whether it was a worthy documentary, it's a ripping yarn. So I just wonder, from all your points of view, um, just deconstructing a bit, what, without getting too much in the weeds with your, we're going to go on to, I mean, how you, what tropes and what techniques you feel um, can lend themselves more to, from drama, can be translated into documentaries, and what ones have you yourselves used? David, are you? I think there's a kind yeah. of focus on character, yeah. which is interesting from drama, which is mm -hmm. to sort of say, in this documentary, what is it, you know, build it around the character and almost like kind of the decisions of sort of, you know, does the character go left or right? You know, they say Hamlet's the most complicated character in drama because he makes so many different decisions. And looking at your kind of central character's decisions. Also, I remember actually working with your colleagues at Netflix on the Trump series where they, Trump was absent for about 15 minutes from one of the programs. And they were like, it's like the Sopranos, you know. You know, Tony Soprano has to be on the screen almost all the time because he, you're kind of on board with, you know, I'm like, what yeah. documentary? It's also it's interesting, that kind of thing of trying to make a documentary like drama. I think when they started making 24 Hours in A&E, I believe, they talked to Kudos, a drama company, and sort of said, if this was a drama in a medical ER, how would you do it? And they said, well, we'll have an A story, which is life or death, a kind of B story that was sort of 
quite serious, but not life or death. And a sea story of a kid who's got his hand stuck in a jar kind of thing. And they would sort of like, and so they kind of rolled it out a bit like that and very brilliantly and successfully. Yeah. It was actually, they, um, they sat and watched, uh, watched ER. Oh, really? Yeah, and just thought, how, how is an episode of ER constructed? Yeah. And how do we then transpose that mm. into factual to make this piece of factual into something which feels like that kind of drama that draws you in? But it's, it's kind of weird as well, because when you're having um, viewings on our sad series, I remember episode two, uh, the commissioner was a bit like, this is a bit kind of, you know, complicated and boring, all this UN bit, sort of, you know what I mean? And I kind of quoted the Basil Fawlty thing when someone complains about the view and said, that's Torquay, madam, sort of thing, you know what I mean? <laughs> that basically kind of, that's what happened, do you know what I mean, a bit, you know? Yeah. We are doing Syria from 2008 to 2011, this episode, <laughs> I can't quite change it like a drama or yeah. rewrite the script, you know, so there's, yeah. there's the limitations to it too. Yeah. The, other, the other big thing I think that has changed is, is that the power of comm has diminished. Mm -hmm. And so the, the openness of, of commissioners to not using comm has been a massive shift in the last four or five years. And, and, it, and it shifts the storytelling on its axis because the question with comm is whose perspective is it? You know, and, and, and I think that's that feeds into the fake news thing. It's like, who's telling us this story? And so it's, it, it's, comm can be excellent, and, and we use it in our films often, but, but it's also important to start the process by saying, who is telling the story? And, 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 and what, which voice is, is, you know, is, is going to guide us through this? And, and owning that, and I think that has been a total, I mean, for, 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 for me, very liberating. Mm. We do in, in um, 24 Hours in Police Custody, which is made by the Garden and by my, my colleagues there. Uh, the restraint with Tom is, you know, is with each passing series, we, can, we find we can fall back more and more. You just let the drama play out and let the characters tell the story, and, you, and uh, the audience will go with that. And they, they want that, they don't need to be uh, manipulated, uh, um, uh, overly guided in the way that you know, we once were. And, and Ben, you've moved, moved between fiction and non-fiction, haven't yeah. you? And what, what have you brought with you back to non-fiction, the documentary space from your learns from drama? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that what I've learned from uh, drama has really informed the films that I've made since then, particularly. But mm. I think that that I, I there's a lot of taste things that a lot one likes about films, movies, and drama, and so on, that you try to sort of put in your films, like uh, um, sort of more confident music is a, big, is a big thing that I've started doing recent, in more recent times, when historically I, I would pair the music right back and have it really kind of minimal and not leading and all these sort of things that are seen as sort of, sort of slightly criminal things to do in documentaries because it interferes with the authenticity. But actually, I think it's slightly embracing the atmosphere of drama and trying to create mood in, in, in documentary is is something that you see more and more now, where it's, there's a bit more uh, of an embracing of, of something deliberate, trying to actually create a feeling. Whereas before, I think that was seen as something that you were not allowed to do or not supposed to do. And now I think that somehow that seems to be all right to do that now. And I think that can sometimes make things, that combined with no commentary and uh, combined with a sort of emphasis on character and so on, it sort of creates a, feel, a, a, a more filmic feeling of things. I think also the way, Things are shot now is 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 is, is different, and that there's a huge appetite for you know filmic sort of photography techniques of having shallow depth of field and um, 
longers where people don't say things for a long time and you're just on a shot of someone's face and sort of thing where in the past people might have said that's too long a pause, you know, and, and actually all those things seem to work a lot better in documentary now. They seem, to, they seem to be more acceptable in documentary now than they were. So I think all of those things lead to a more, slightly more filmic approach to just to, 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 to fairly sort of mainstream filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, though we've been touching on the positive notions, but, but David, you, you, you sort of alluded to more um, a possible downside of trying to shoehorn documentaries into drama. And Colette, I was just wondering from your point of view whether you see any... You know, any any disadvantage or a slippery slope in trying to draw in too many, or what would the red flags be or dangers be of trying to draw mm. in too many drama tropes into documentaries? I think certainly what we found doing Married to a Pedophile, where it was um, all authentic documentary sound, but we shot it as a drama. Mm. There was a lot. Um, we had to think quite carefully about how much we drew attention to that, so that when we shot things. Sort of deliberately in a drama way that you couldn't get in a documentary. Mm. For example, we had um, one of the contributors talking about how she felt about something, but she was in the car driving, and we had a camera mount and stripped off all the sound of the car because we could, because we had pure sound originally. And that is a bit disorientating, but we kind of thought it's okay because you know people are. We think, don't mind that now, it's sophisticated enough that you can go, that's, well, that's a drama sort of trait there, but I know what she's saying is believable, it's authentic. And I, I don't know if we got it completely right. I think there, you know, there might have still been some people that sort of thought, well, you know, which, which way, are these the real people or not? I mean, I'm probably actually just have to explain yeah, should we, should that. We back oh, up oh, yeah, probably this is a good it. segue into this, this is the problem. Yeah. So can you just explain to the audience, maybe people haven't seen... Yeah. Are really what the, what the approach was, why you took that approach, sure, okay. and introduced the clip. Yes, okay. So the film was about um, wives of men who'd been convicted for viewing indecent images of children. So for very good reason, um, these were women that were put in an impossible situation. So it was a very interesting predicament, but they couldn't possibly be seen on camera safely because they had a very real threat of vigilantes coming after them. So... Um, what we did was record sound only. We never shot a single frame of them on camera. We only ever recorded sound. I hung out with them, as if you would, with an observational authored documentary. And then we cut the film, um, as you would a normal documentary, but to a blank screen. And then started to create scenes around what they'd said. Sometimes purely as they said it, where they said it. And sometimes we could transpose different scenes on. So if somebody's walking energetically because we're having a chat just going for a walk, then she's digging the garden or something. You know, we had a bit of freedom there to change that. Um, but what it meant was that they could actually comfortably tell their stories knowing that no one was ever going to find out who they were and they didn't after it went out. Um, but the shoot, it meant the shoot was then a proper drama shoot with actors cast to lip sync, to mime their words. Um, and that in itself is technically incredibly difficult. It's like you mentioned um, Claire Bernard's The Arbor, mm. which did it brilliantly as an art film. And this was, in a way, taking sort of what she'd developed, but, but doing it in a slightly different mm. form as a documentary, where you've still got those engagements, still conversation you're having with someone as if it's a documentary. So the kind of, the degree of how to keep that feeling authentic was huge. It was very, well, it felt very risky. Mm. Um, but, so the actors had to literally rehearse it like it's... Um, 
music, like a music video. So they've got an earpiece, they listen to the words, they practice the cadences, they practice the swallows, the breaths, and everything. And then they've got to act as if they are holding those emotions, but like a documentary contributor, they have to sort of restrain them as well and tell you by holding something back in the way that I think documentary contributors tend to more. So really tricky acting job, mm. and then really tricky sound edit, which took hours <laughs> and hours and hours. Mm. Yeah. So should we, should we see a clip, John? Yeah. What this particular clip? We ch chose <coughs> the intro because it sort of explains yeah. the form a bit. So get yeah. around. So tell me quickly, who's nice, who's not? Um, lovely over there with the van. Horrible to the right. <laughs> The guy in the bungalow there spoke to me very awkwardly, but said I had nothing to be afraid of. Enemy, enemy. Hello. Yes, well, cold. How are you? Nice one, not horrible. Yeah, nice. No, no, she lives at the end. People tend to know each other's business. Yeah, of course, people notice things. It's not like police cars turn up every day around here. What's the thing you're really worried about? I have visions of people coming up the close with machetes and all sorts, poisoning my cats. Because that's what people do, unfortunately. Look at that. The one I was telling you about. Look at her smug. And what had she written? This woman, she started an absolute vendetta against this couple in um, Village. He'd been convicted of viewing indecent images. Here we go. Here we go. He has no fucking rights. He should be shot on sight. 92 shares. Sick, twisted, evil bastard. Needs castrating and his eyes covering in tape. Cut his bits off and choke him with them, dirty bastard. their human rights there, you notice, the two of them, got to wonder about the wife. This woman must be a whore. Nice, isn't it? His wife is probably as sick as him. This disgusting pair have no remorse for what he has done. Please share this with all friends so that we can get the maximum exposure of dirty scum. I hope they both get beaten badly, knock the shit out of them, sickos. Yeah, that could be me.
Hannibal collect, just to, just because it, I mean, just in, you know, in terms of the craft, because it mm -hmm. feels seamless um, and incredibly immersive. So it must have been an amazing, you know, as we said, difficult operation. But how, I mean, I was just curious about your intention really with it, because obviously you're setting the premise up mm -hmm. very clearly with what they're seeing um, after, after the introduction. But during the course of the film, what is your intention? How, how aware do you want the viewer still to be that this is lip synced? Or is it a device that you want to become mm. invisible? Yeah, no, that was a, it was a tricky one. Yeah. Um, because, because it was so much, it's kind of commissioned on the form in many ways. It's like, let's try this form and see if we can, you know, open up this subject. And it did. It meant that we could speak to the husbands as well. We never would have got them. And we never would have got them. The husbands were talking to their, uh, one of the husbands was talking to his daughters. It was incredibly raw. We'd never have got that. But once we'd established that we're going to do it this way, we kind of wanted people to just go with it so that, apart from that, we don't draw attention to it again. Mm -hmm. In a way, just trying not to be too much in love with the form and just sort of saying, this has got to exist as a good story. You know, you've got to, you've got to, you've, you've got to want to come back after the ad break because you want to know what's going to happen next, not because let's see how clever it is with managing to keep it in time. So... We were hoping you'd forget about that. Right. I think it, it, it must have been a game changer in the sense of understanding that this is possible because it's really kind of, to your point, it's opening a door, isn't it, to many mm. subjects and contributors that probably wouldn't come forward in normal cases. So have you developed the form any further since then? Is, is that, do you feel there's another turn of the wheel in terms of pushing that yeah, price? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, yeah. um, so we've got more to make. Right. So we're looking into subjects at the moment. Um, it just feels like it, yeah, absolutely opens the door because you can go and talk to people who, um, you know, we contacted people that would never go on camera normally and, you know, show them that and say, these people are fine. They didn't, the vigilantes didn't come after them. They're okay. And yeah. they, they found it so surprising when they saw themselves being played by someone else anyway. They felt very removed and they're in different locations. It's so much has changed that they, they felt sort of safe about it. So definitely it's opened it up and it's, it's given that kind of, it's, it's absolutely opened the door to other people, yeah. But in terms of the... that they would be found out? Yeah, definitely, hugely, because, I mean, it was a big, you know, it was a big commitment on their part to, to do it because we, we had nothing to really prove the technique. Um, I mean, like, the Arbor was brilliant. It's been done, but it's, it doesn't quite, you know, it's not on the same risk factor. Yeah. yeah, and Notes on Blindness, another excellent one. Mm. Beautiful art house film. Mm -hmm. um, again, there's, there's, there's little risk there to them um, in the same way. Um, Did you distort the voices at all, or were they just as you...? Slightly, mm. yeah. But actually, you can't go so far. Um, it starts sounding a bit robotic and a bit mm. uh, crime-watchy, so <laughs> we sort of, yeah, just a little bit. But I think, you know, they've got to actually know that their, their family will recognise their voice, certainly, because uh, it can't be changed that much, yeah. So, should, should we just? I'm just kind of conscious that we should keep moving on. So, Linda, can we move on? It's a different type of, very different type of storytelling. Yeah. I mean, we're just moving on now to what we call event live television. So, do, do you want to explain what it was and maybe introduce the clip? Yeah, I mean, it came about um, because we we'd been asked if we would um, look at uh, doing A and E live because we make 24 hours in A and E and. We didn't feel that was um, something that we wanted to do at the garden. We weren't sure that we would get anything that felt uh, justified being live or that we would get any 
any richer stories from being live, but we were really intrigued by the idea of um, turning that live lens uh, from our documentary-making perspective onto something where, which normally wasn't live. You know, we're accustomed to seeing well, weddings or sports events, and, yeah, and that's why it's live. It's happening there. It's 90 minutes or, you know. Um, and well, you know, what we found at the, at the garden is that we... Uh, the, the rich stories are from the world at the end of your nose, from things which are happening right in, the, you know, in front of you. And so thinking about the medical space, we just thought about operations and not uh, cutting-edge medical uh, innovation, but uh, l looking at who is undergoing and who is performing uh, and what those procedures are that everybody experiences every day. It's the world that's going on around us every day. And what are the stories to tell? There. And rather than so, we, we chanced upon you know that space, and then we started talking about Operation Live, and then just started thinking about well, how do we tell these stories because we rig an operating theatre, but how does that become compelling for two straight hours? Mm -hmm. um, and we wanted to bring the slow TV techniques into it, which means that it is it just plays out as it happens, and then in just exploring how we then shape that two hours, uh, what we ended up doing was just creating this, this hybrid, really, where we used the crafting techniques of documentary, really. So what I did was um, I just got my teams to go into uh, the operating theatre and we film the operation way before the live, uh, and we bring it back into an edit, and then we craft it in an edit, as you would a film. You Make, you work out what the stories that you're telling at each part, in, in each part, uh, what the chapters are for the story, how, um, what it lends itself to. And then, so we were just using all of those uh, storytelling devices, but then we were just telling it in a different way, so telling it in a live, and uh, we didn't want a presenter, and we didn't want all commentary. Um, so we thought, what do we... So then we just stole a bit of sports commentary, and we thought, OK, well, I'll have someone in a booth in the hospital grounds, talking to the action. So the action becomes the actuality that's unfolding in front of us. But every now and then, we need a bit of help explaining it. So we'll just be explicit in the way that we're doing that. Uh, and so we created this, this booth where there's a, a presenter and another expert who's just shedding a bit of light and giving a bit of insight. And then we brought into that our, um, the technique we found worked so well in 24 hours in a &E, which is to have these VTs, which are crafted, which gives in, give insight into the people who are around the operating table who are otherwise just in masks and uh, surgical gowns. And so you see them and you connect with them and you understand what they're bringing to the table, what they're bringing into the room every time they come in, you know, what, uh, who these people are, not just what their surgical skill is. So it's a real mishmash of lots of different... Uh, Lots of different types of storytelling, and um, we just came, came together, I think, I think quite, quite successfully. Shall we see a clip? Yeah. yeah well, and this is the heart. This is an open heart surgery. Okay, so we're just about to um, fibrillate the heart, and then we'll put the aortic cross clamp on, and then while the heart's still fibrillating, we'll open the aorta just about here or so. And then uh, we'll deliver some cardioplegia, which is uh, a drug designed to stop the heart directly into the coronary ostia. Okay, fibrillator on then, thanks. Fib on. So you can see the ECG turn 
Over into vibration. Okay, vent right up. Vent right Cross up. Cross climb, thanks. Blow down. Blow down. Put the aortic cross clamp on here. Vent right up, thanks. Vent Eleven right blade. Up. And we're just about down. to flow back up. Flow back up. Happy? Yep, coming back up. Okay. We'll just open the aorta. Like so. Scissors, thanks. Carefully dissect the uh, aorta off the uh, Okay. Give me a, Such a sensitive organ. I, I kind of get worried about all the poking and the <laughs> moving about. It, it's all right, Colvin is just doing what we normally do, just to get a good view of what's going on. So he's put the cross clamp, the, the big clamp, across the aorta. That cuts the heart's blood supply off. And then what he's about mm -hmm. to do is just slightly alter the delicate chemical balance that allows the heart to beat. And when he does that, the heart will stop completely still. Um, and that means that the heart muscle will still be very happy at the end of the operation when the aortic valve has been replaced. So how does he alter that delicate chemical balance? Essentially it's with potassium, uh, adding potassium down the heart arteries. Um, but the heart will then completely stop. And this part of the operation is now Colvinda stitching against the clock. We want the time that the cross clamp's on to be as short as possible. Um, Uh, actually, just watching it back, when um, we first uh, talked to Nicky Campbell about it, and you know, he came and he, uh, he he's a presenter, and so he wanted to present it, and so we talked about a long time talking about the tone uh, and about how he had to just keep pulling back and pulling back, and we had to just let this you know, this actuality unfold in front of us, and that's what was dominant. Uh, and then he suddenly said, oh, it's like radio. It's like, and yes, his commentary is exactly like intimate radio. That's what he's doing. He's just nudging us here and there, shaping it in that, in that very delicate way. And that's, uh, that was really instrumental, actually, in just uh, getting the right tone. And so it feels organic, and uh, we're just uh, running up to Series 2 now, and we go live next week. And what's really interesting is all the, a lot of the people who've come to work on it think they know what it is. They think, oh, well, it just looks quite effortless. You just rock up, you put the cameras up, and the surgeons think there's going, you just let it happen. And actually, the crafting that goes on behind it always surprises everyone. It's just layers and layers of thinking through and working out how to tell those stories, as well as all the other, you know, the protocols and uh, making sure people don't die, you know, on live TV. <laughs> not, they're not going to die. Not <laughs> but so it, it kind of makes sense. Just going back to how you and Dave were describing, you know, um, A&E and that one born every minute that, that gardens the company to do this kind of mm. thing because what you're talking about really is that you are mapping the dramatic beats yeah. in this story That's as much important. as David was saying that you know you can construct the, la the layers in, in some of the previous series. Yeah, that, that's it. and uh, we we, can't, we we set out to do something different and we ended up just you know doing a bit of a reinvention of that, the grammar of uh, live TV by, by bringing those documentary story beat sensibilities to it. But what, what's the live bit then? How do you manage to call it live if it's cut? It's pre-cut? No, no, no. The, oh, what we do is we pre-cut we pre a version in an edit. Right. And then we dump that 
and then we go into the live, and then we so we've got a sense of the storytelling. Right, right. So that's how you in the live, but yeah, so it's all that's all there. But but otherwise, it is actually properly live. Incredible. Yes. So I mean, but but don't you ever get concerned about something going majorly wrong? I think that would just be a huge. It's live right. surgery. It yeah. is honestly, genuinely unpredictable right. in many ways. And it is somebody who's having their sternum sawed through with this, you know, Oof. <laughs> and, yeah. and all of that. And next week, yeah. somebody's having the side of their skull taken off because it's brain surgery. And somebody's having a kidney transplant from their father who's donating it. And, you know, um, so. Yeah, so there's a lot that that can go wrong. It's it's pretty it's pretty risky, but yeah, the audience have come to it, and uh, the feedback has has been you know it's quite phenomenal actually. What what is the plan B if it something goes horribly wrong? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so what we do we do we have a uh, we have a plan B we have a yeah, solution B. You have someone uh, ready. Procedure. So no, it's not not ready because no. you can't suddenly switch mm. to another operation. So. Uh, we film a patient B earlier in the day, and that's filmed as live, and that just sits there. And as we go out live, we, there's, some, there's a producer tracking with the patient B all the beats of the patient A. If anything um, feels like it's going untoward in patient A, then we've pre-scripted how we then cross over via VT and part breaks to patient B. So it's seamless for the audience watching. Um, but then we protect, we safeguard patient dignity, patient confidentiality, the surgical teams, but you still keep, uh, you stay on air. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's go, let's move on to something completely different, shall we, James? I mean, uh, James, I'd say you've got a very different approach, a longer approach to your projects. Can you, I mean, you've always done many great documentaries, documentary series, but so... Um, Maybe just pertaining to Stephen or, or can you just talk us through what your top line approach is when you're thinking about what elements you want? Um, uh, well, so the, the, the first thing I think about is perspective, mm -hmm. is, is what's, what's the perspective on, on the story? And um, I think documentary now is, is, about, is really about letting people talk. And, and, and finding perspectives that, that challenge the way we see the world or open up stories that we know really well in different, in different ways. And, and so, so often, you know, we, we, look at, we look at stories, I mean, we've got a film going out this week about the Irish border, and as soon as Brexit happened, I was like, I just really want to understand what life is like on the border and also, you know how, how it evolved to this to this place. And so you you find somebody who's older than the border, uh, you know, like a 102 year old, and you ask him, you know, what's what's it like living by the border? And he tells you the stories of smuggling. And so that that's that's the kind of perspective that we're looking for. With Stephen, Stephen was an interesting. Stephen had been there had been dozens of films made about Stephen Lawrence. I mean, maybe dozens is an exaggeration, but certainly close to a dozen, and um, a story everybody thought they knew very well, uh, a story where the kind of the outcomes were, were, quite, were quite clear and nation-changing. But, um, but, but what I thought was that, that Doreen had, had, had 
that none of those films had had actually uh, the, the documentaries had ever been been uh, without commentary or or experts. They they had all. And what I thought we could do is let Doreen tell the story, let let Doreen lead it, let her perspective lead it. And then as 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 uh, as I became more familiar with the story, I realised that Dor Doreen sort of initiates the first episode, and then Imran Khan, her lawyer initiates the second episode, and then the third episode is initiated by the police officer who ultimately secured convictions in the case of, of I mean, I should say it's Stephen, the case of Stephen Lawrence, mm -hmm. um, who is an 18-year-old who was murdered in Elton. So, um, so yeah, so, so essentially using perspective as, as a sort of a dramatic starting point for, for, for storytelling, and then and then the, the next thing is 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 craft, and and that's where you say, well, how do you bring all the dramatic beats into the story? How do you bring the kind of the same rigor as dramatic storytelling into 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 this? And and the thing I suppose we haven't mentioned yet is the role of the editor, which is I mean this is the era of the documentary editor, and and they're doing huge huge amounts of work in the edit suites to kind of shape this material into into something very dramatic. And then, the, and then the last bit for me is, is, is impact, is what is it that we're trying to say or change? I think it's important that the that, that docs are purposed, not political or biased, but, but purposed, that you, 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 that you think about why you're telling this particular story. So should we take a look at a clip? Do you want to interview which Yeah, so this, this is a clip. Um, I think this is a clip about Dwayne and, and Doreen. Dwayne Brooks was Stephen Lawrence's friend, mm. and um, he was with him when he was attacked. And uh, I, think, I think the rest of the clip is self-explanatory. This is years, decades, centuries of culture that has as part of its DNA an assumption about the black communities. When you were black and you were a victim of crime and you called the police, the tendency was that the police somehow would start to investigate you. And everybody understood it. Everybody knew it. We can go as far back as the 50s, the 70s, the 80s with the Brixton riots, you know. The same thing keeps coming up. We're not being treated fairly. We're not being treated fairly. What, is that a chip on the shoulder? Is that stuff just the imagination? The unsolved murders, you know, of black youths, someone's imagination? Come on. I found it hard speaking to people because I needed help. And there was nobody to help that had experienced what I had experienced. I was treated as a person that didn't have any feelings because I was just a main witness, a main witness. What the fuck does a main witness mean to anybody? The rumors that we heard was that Duane ran away and left Stephen. And in our early days, nobody would run away and leave the other. I don't know. I don't know why he didn't run. But he, he was always of the view that if he didn't do anything wrong to anybody, then he wouldn't run from something like that. For me, I, I don't, I'm not taking that kind of chance. 
because danger is danger. He knows he's you know, forever will be the man that ran away and left his mate. He knows that. And I think Mrs. Lawrence hasn't forgiven him. They've never spoken of they since. No, they haven't. I wanted to hear from him what had happened, and he's never spoken to me. You want him to have the answers. You want to make sense of the madness. And in that, you maybe forget that he's just a teenage boy that was running for his life. Seeing James, I mean, um, can you talk a bit about? I mean, with all these past tense stories, I mean, we've had with quite a lot of you conversations in the past about how to tell past tense stories. It's like, well, that's a great story, but how do you tell it? I was just curious with that because you had a reference to Paul Greengrass film. So, can you just talk through how you came across the grammar of how to tell this past tense story? Because often, you know, there's news footage, but really, news footage can often only get you so so far. Mm-hmm. So it was, so Stephen's, Stephen's death had become a big part of, of British culture. And there are huge amounts of references to that from Chris O'Filly's painting, No Woman, No Cry in the Tate, to Paul Greengrass's uh, film, The Murder of Stephen Lawrence. And, and we wanted the series to, to scoop everything up and, and to put everything into it so that the way that it impacted culture and the way that people made films about it became part of the process of building, building the film itself. And so the reason that we, we, um, we interviewed Marianne Jean-Baptiste was to create a very specific meta level of her referring to being, to performing as Doreen, but then bringing her own experiences as, as, a, as a person, she's Marianne Jean-Baptiste, the one with the glasses, she talks about the generation, the sort of, and, and so there was a cultural layer. So we also used the, so the music of Soul to Soul was very important. We, we used um, the BBC's panoramas and, and, and their, their film, The Killing of um, um, the Boys Who Killed Stephen Lawrence became a big part of the third episode. So we were trying to, 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 to you know, literally reference. And the reason that, he, that we credited him on the screen was because we specifically wanted people to know, like that that was that 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 we were using other bits of other films to kind of put together to to put to put together this film. And there are a number number of documentaries as well. So as 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 an archive project, you're you're drawing on the work that's gone before, inevitably, and and you want to 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 show that in a way that that that, that makes it it as as dynamic as possible. And in this case, I think it was, um, you know, it was, it, it was, it was, it was, it was really important to 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 bring all that together. We have a whole sequence about the Daily Mail's newspaper headline in the film, the famous murderers headline, you know, which was another example of the media narrative shaping the course or the outcome of 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 the narrative. Um, so it's. It, 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 it was all. It was. It added a, a layer to us that the the, the 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 archive was not just archived. It was. It was a layer full of meaning and intent and purpose and personality that had also shaped the outcomes of the story. Um, I'm just going to move over now to 
Japan. Um, I think just, you know, which I, I kind of feel <coughs> there are similarities towards your work and feeling it being un, unmediated, and both of you seem to really lean into um, incredibly intimate stories of trust, which presumably rely on you having to, you know, really spend a lot of time and emotional investment with those contributors. Um, and I'm just curious about how you, how you approach um, your contributors and what level of responsibility you feel towards them as you're going along and how that impacts on the shape of the films themselves. Do you want to, what would you like to speak to, particularly Grenfell, maybe? Um, yeah, Grenfell is a good example yeah. of responsibility to contributors. I mean, I... Uh, I'm not going to lie, it's like you live it, you know, it's 24-7, mm. you know. Um, if you take on responsibility for something that, it obviously depends on your point of view, but if you feel it's something profoundly significant um, in which lots of lives have been lost, then you, you have to take responsibility very seriously and you have to, I, I have to give everything that I've got. So I, it's the first thing I think of when I wake up in the morning and the last thing I think of before I fall asleep at night and it's exhausting. Um, but I sort of feel that if you don't do that, then there's something a bit wrong somehow. It's not a nine to five type uh, job you've got there. You've got it's it's it's, it's more than that. Uh, I mean, I I feel a huge weight of responsibility to contributors generally, and that's probably just because the sort of person that I am. Um, I probably feel too much responsibility. They, I mean, they're not thinking about it. I'm sure most of the time, you know, they, the film dominates my life, but I'm sure for them it's just a tiny part of, of all the stuff that they're dealing with. Mm. Um, so I think the, the the key thing is a responsibility to to reflect the things that they are concerned with the most, and not just repeat the things that you've been told before. So with Grenfell. We, we, we didn't want the film to be about the fire. You know, we, the, the, the fire was the fire, and fires happen, and, and, and it was devastating, and there are reasons for the fire. But we really, what we were interested in was what the fire represented and how it had happened and how we got to that point and, and how people responded to the fire. So all the way through, it was about trying to interrogate that and trying to interrogate the things that weren't the fire. And also... Um, we didn't want it to feel like it was a disaster movie, you know, disaster film where um, people could say, oh, my God, that's so awful. Um, what we wanted was for people to focus on all the issues that were raised by the fire. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a massive weight of responsibility, and uh, it was a, just a huge, huge undertaking. <laughs> um, you know, um, there was a huge amount of mistrust in the community towards the media generally, for good reason. They've been very poorly, just, just to put it generously, they've been poorly represented in the media um, after the fire and before the fire, completely invisible as far as, as, far as the, the sort of mainstream media is concerned. And that meant that once a terrible disaster happened and the place was flooded with media, they were incredibly resentful and bitter about that and angry about that and mm. saying that you know, something terrible had to happen before people even know we exist down here. And so that meant going in as a documentary unit, you know, you were really, it was really very challenging. And you had to win trust. And um, the main technique to win that trust was just by sticking around, you know, uh -huh. and, and turning up regularly and being there every day and not pressuring people into uh, taking part in the film, not trying to persuade anybody, but just, just sort of patiently sort of repeating what you were about and what you wanted <coughs> to do with the film, what you wanted to try and do with the film. And, 
And it was uh, nerve-wracking because we were, you know, weeks away from transmission before we got some of the key contributors to take part in the film. Mm. And it was one of those situations where the community would look to certain other members of the community, and once they had sort of thrown in their lot, that felt like a green light for them, and they could get involved as well. But literally, with weeks to go, just weeks to go, till transmission, there were still some key storytellers who weren't on board, and uh, thankfully they changed their mind, and um, they were delighted with the film. And that was just a massive indication because we could we could breathe out after you know mm. that's part of ten months of, of work. Should we have a look? Do you need to explain? First of all, I just want to introduce myself. I'm Kim Taylor Smith, um, and I'm a week in the job. Why are you and when I took this job on uh, as deputy leader, one of my brothers said to me, he said, "Look, Kim, just remember," he said that the book has been written, and the book is the failure of the council. He said, and don't even think about changing that book because it will always be the failure of the council. And he said, but if you're going to take this job on, what you've got to think about is writing the second volume. <laughs> somebody needs to step up and somebody needs to take on this chance. My first task is to deal with the 380 people who are currently sitting in a hotel. But can I just say, there's going to have to be a queue here. I've always had a policy of being very frank and open. The one thing my wife always says to me in the morning you know, she says to me, Kim, do up your flies and don't talk like a businessman. You know, because my background before becoming a council is a businessman. You can shout as much as you like. You can shout as much as you like. Shouting is not going to help. Not okay, you can keep question. going like this at me. You can keep going like this, but I am trying to give you some answers. Sit down! You're saying, yep, 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 you're very tired. That gentleman's lost his child. I know that each and every one of you are trying, but... Can you understand how that appears? I remember most of the council meetings only because just the disconnect between the people that I grew up with and the people that are sitting on the other side of the table who were, you know, who were tasked to, I don't know, take care of the community. Hello. Hello. I've taken on the job to try and find homes for the people. How's it going? How's it going? Um, slowly. Um, it's going slowly because we are running at the pace of the individuals. Um, we've... People in the community and the council, there is that sense, I think, that um, people are speaking different languages. They're speaking English, but they're speaking different versions of English. <laughs> but did you, I'm just on, no, you've obviously done an amazing job getting the access to those individuals and their trust. Did you, did you show them the film? Um, before it went out, and what, what um, was their we showed the we showed the um, we showed the residents of the tower the film, and we showed key the sort of key contributors. We didn't show the council the film, mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah. So we, we 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 basically had a screening which people could attend if they wanted to, and probably about fifty percent of people in the film came to the screening, uh, which was pretty nerve wracking, but but went very well. It was a long silence at the end of the screening. 
which was didn't quite know what which way it had gone. And then um, eventually people started talking, and they started they they started they said thank you actually, which was sort of slightly heartbreaking. But mm. um, but um, I think it's important thing to say about this is that is that you know the, the particular challenge of this film was it was a present tense film. It wasn't a past tense film, and we were we were filming these meetings as they were happening, and um, you just didn't know which direction things were going to go in, and. Um, you know, literally standing there with a camera, you were vulnerable to people criticizing you and commenting on you, and they didn't know, they, didn't, they couldn't differentiate you be between you and Sky News or ITV News or whoever it was going down there for, to make a little two-minute piece for the, for the evening bulletin, you know. Mm. So it was, um, it was very challenging, but, but we, we, but we I th oh, the reason I picked that clip was because that is pretty much the kind of core of the problem of Grenfell, which is the disconnect between the authorities and the local community. I mean, they just, even though they're trying to talk in many cases, they just fail to communicate. They just cannot. And we, we sort of deliberately chose two white middle-class men to be, the, to, be, to be the people that, or the Faisal's in there too, but we wanted the vicar to be the one who delivers that, that message about the disconnect. Because what we, didn't, what we didn't want is for, to give our audience an opportunity to dismiss the person that's telling you as just some disgruntled person who doesn't like the council anyway and so on, mm. just to, to show that the, the, the issues sort of transcend class and race and all of those, and all of those things. Mm. Wow. Okay, well, it's, it's very powerful, Ben. I mean, in a way, I, I'm going to move on to, to David. Now, I'm going to say now something different again, but in a way, um, I would say there's certain similarities in... In, in what you're trying to achieve through the different work, but um, in terms of layers of meaning and 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 just looking at the at the causes as much as the story in front of you. But uh, but David, you have a very different approach recently. I'm talking about your work. Sure. I mean, just go back to the very beginning about the state of documentaries. Mm. The work of the people on this panel is unbelievable, mm. isn't it? I mean, just yeah. all of them. It's in sort of the level of commitment and moral seriousness and purpose, and it's just. You know, and the creativity and playing the form is staggeringly good. So it's rather, you know, <laughs> in terms of answering the first question, just yeah. look at this stuff. Um, my stuff... Uh, well, so we're, we're talking talk more about, about archive, aren't we? We're talking yeah, okay, about archive. how to... Sure. I mean, it's twofold, really, isn't it? How, to, how you're telling stories through archive and how you're then really turning to more into our point at the beginning, we drama, more kind of box set um, events. Yeah, I mean, I suppose... Uh, and how intentional that was for you. Well, it's, yeah, it's pretty intentional in terms of, I mean, just in a theoretical way before you get into the actual subject matter. Yeah. The kind of, uh, the sort of, you know, way isn't the perfect television program in my mind, uh, sort of like a box set drama as compelling as that and as engaging as that and as mm. present tense as that. But if it's real as well, then it just takes a whole other level and there's a way in which fact is just more extraordinary than fiction, really. That's kind of one of the reasons documentary is so magical is that often things that you couldn't believe in a, in a drama that would be over the top are actually real. And so we were just kind of uh, trying to assemble all the archive on some of these stories and, um, and basically try and live in that archive and trying to kind of put the viewer there so they can experience something which might normally be a current affairs type story. But, but I mean, I feel, you know, I'm, I think all the different approaches are unbelievably good. This is just sort of our way of doing it. And maybe we should show the first clip, which is uh, of uh, a series we did about uh, the Assad family in Syria. And basically just kind of, uh, this is the opening of the series. And then maybe I can talk a bit more about it. 
I've been at the Western for a year as a junior ophthalmologist. And we had a Middle East doctor, his name was Bashar. He came to work in a big black car every day, he's dropped off at the steps at the Western. He was obviously a wealthy Middle Eastern background. So it was only an afternoon clinic and a lady was called in Middle Eastern dress. Popped her chin in the slit lamp. She looked up at his face and sudden some expression of surprise. Started speaking very quickly and very excitedly in Arabic and sort of touching his hand and got the rest of her family in and Basher was very embarrassed by this and was please, please, please. The other members of the, you know, the medical team and nurse of Basher, what was going on? What was that about? And he said, oh, I, I hadn't told anybody, but my, my father, uh, he is president of Syria. I mean, that is the enigma. It's hard to really place that junior doctor where he is in the context of the world now. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of the starting point of it, I suppose, which is a kind of... And I suppose there's a kind of morality about all the things we've been uh, talking about and sort of uh, the kind of central question of that series is essentially how did a, an eye doctor who, who wanted to help the blind to see end up uh, gassing hundreds of thousands, or killing and gassing some, but killing hundreds of thousands of his own people? Mm. And him and his wife, Asmo, is British-born Syrian. And uh, how did that happen? And so uh, we try and explore that and sort of... You know, I suppose it raises the question of is there something fundamentally about them or if they could, could any of us? And sort of that's the fault line and question, the central question we're interested in in that series. And I suppose that's something that's interesting to talk about in terms of the craft is sort of often when you're making these series, you have to kind of really work out what is the, you were talking about perspective, but also what is the central question you're interested in? Because often there's so many scenes you could get into. So it's almost like we have an analogy when we're making it of like, some, if you're on a train, sometimes you get out of the station and walk around, and sometimes you see things out the window. And how do you decide to get off and walk around in that and explore that? And I suppose we were interested in those decisions, the descent, the incremental steps, kind of, you know, if it would have been me, where would I have got off if I would have done, do you know what I mean, in terms of gone a different path? And so that gave a kind of clarity of focus to, to the story. I suppose uh, the other thing that's useful in these... Uh, kind of series is a sort of level of dramatic irony where sort of the viewer knows how it ends or there is something of meaning in the end, you know. And so kind of, I mean, things like the brilliant film Senna, another kind of um, brilliant thing, is sort of the fact that he dies at the end, you kind of know that he will, and sort of that story builds up to that, or, or Amy or whatever. And so obviously that's something we, we, we look for in this kind of thing. Uh, so um, the last interview in the series is with... Uh, a doctor who went to medical school with Bashar Assad, and he now uh, treats the victims of the bombing in Aleppo, and the two of them just kind of went their different kind of way. So it's sort of, sort of, again, you just couldn't make you couldn't make it up, and it's very, very kind of intense and serious stuff. In terms of dramatic irony, on a slightly lighter-ish mm. note, uh, this was the second of these series that we've done. The first one was about uh, the life of President Donald Trump which is kind of, uh, uh, and again, of course, there's a dramatic irony of 
how did he become president? Who is this strange orange liar with the weird hair? And it's sort of like a good way to kind of roll back is uh, to kind of uh, see him when he was younger. So we made a, a, a four-part series where you kind of... Uh, and the clip I'm going to show you is this very tiny bit right at the end of his first ever network television appearance. It's 1980. And Donald Trump is very excited because he's on the TV. And he's being interviewed uh, about kind of being a wealthy, young, handsome uh, real estate person. And so I'll just play you that for dramatic irony. If you lost your fortune today, what would you do tomorrow? Maybe I'd run for president. I don't know. No, I'm only kidding. You know, when I say that, of course, I'm being somewhat facetious. I thank you. Thank you, Rhonda, very much. Thank you. Have we just about done it? Well, excellent, I have to tell you. You're very, very good. Yeah, amazing. So orange. Um, I just want we're going to open up the audience in a minute, but one thing we haven't talked about, and I was really actually just curious about all your views on it, was um, we've been really drilling into the series here. Um, and this year has been quite buzzy with the feature docs. I mean, Three Identical Strangers has done very well for Channel 4, as did Dan Reed's Astonishing Finding Neverland. Um, last year in America, they had their sort of, I think, four or five top box office feature documentaries ever, including Free Solo and um, a few others that did, actually didn't translate over, over the Atlantic. But I just really wonder, we've been really sort of do you feel that um, where you see feature documentaries, position read series, is it are there such opportunities still in the feature field? Do you, do you think, and, and is that a genre that is reinventing itself I, as much I, as the series? Well, I think that the, I mean, Stephen was very much influenced by OJ, and the question is, is was is OJ a feature doc or is it a TV series? Mm. And there's so I think there's a kind of a blurring of the lines. I mean, I wouldn't. So I would say that all of the, the I think feature docs like I mean Senna Senna was probably the kind of the game one of the game changers in terms of feature docs, in terms of making filmmakers aware of how differently you could tell a documentary story. And so I think there's a kind of a constant interplay, I would I would say. Yeah, so what you're saying is in a way some of the series and things we've been talking about. Could have been, yeah, there's sort of extended three acts. Doc. I mean, Stephen started doc. life as a feature doc. It was, yeah. was, I think it was originally right. going to be a feature doc, and then it was, it was you know, it, the, the, there was a sense that as, a, as an event, you know, actually BBC One was, yeah. was the kind of the place that it needed to be. There was a sort of a general kind of feeling that actually the thing that the, the BBC One could do was, was make it a national event. So the, there's a bit of interplay between the two things, I would say. There's clearly an, uh, an audience appetite for them. When you, you, know, you watch Amy or you watch uh, Stephen or you watch Fire or Three Identical Strangers or Neverland, then you know, they're touching on subjects which are uh, popular, which are about pop icons, mm. which are uh, universal in, in theme, uh, and then treated with... Uh, uh, using those story beats from drama and you know, pulling on that m means that they become more accessible. So while the appetite is there, it feels like you know, there's a, there'll be a desire to fulfil and feed that appetite. Yeah? And, and just finally, I mean, do you guys see any, any new trends going forward or any predictions of you know, the, the, where we go from here? 
Are there any in terms of subject areas or form or approach? Do you think we're on the verge of new? More lip sync. More lip sync. <laughs> uh, recognition of editors, actually, I think. Yeah. Um, like that collaboration. I mean, Ben and I basically passed Ben Brown back and forth between us last year. And, yeah. Um, yeah, they're so key. They've, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a golden age. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. yeah. Anything else? I think I'd like to see see more comedy docs. Yeah. I think I think <laughs> it's hard to find the ones yeah. that like good, to touch. Good, good comedy docs. Yeah. I, and I think that that I've slightly comedy steered docs. away from doing sort of drop you know drama documentaries, which were this slightly sort of un, uh, awkward combination of, of of a documentary, a real story being kind of illustrated or painted up with with drama and. And that in the past has been often quite a clumsy and sort of slightly unsatisfactory thing. And I think now that has really landed as a form in a way that it hasn't been before. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of the films, like you mentioned, Three Identical Strangers and so on, you know, they obviously budget comes into it and so on to be able to do those things well. But they, I think that has now reached a very sophisticated place which it, where, where it's not crime watch anymore, where it has been, where it was for years. And mm. it, it really felt like that, that was neither fish nor fowl, and now it really feels like it's a, it's a very solid genre in itself. And I think that will just increase. Okay. Um, right, how long have we got? Oh, we've got 13 minutes. Um, has anyone got any questions? For any of, yeah. Oh, have we got any mics? Sorry, hold on, we better wish wait. There's a... Um, thank you so much for an enlightening um, discussion. My question is primarily about writing a documentary and the structure. Do you write it, if you're starting out, I mean, I've got an idea for a documentary I want to work on, but I'm just curious to know, is how, you know, do you write it from the structures if it was just a standard drama, like a fictional drama, is that a good way to start? Or do you, when you're trying to incorporate real life elements, should you write it from that perspective? Just curious to know what, what, what the challenges of, because you're talking a lot about dramatic license to tell a story of a real person. I'm just curious to know what, how you would approach it as a writer. No, how, how would a writer approach it, you know, if doing? Well, I, I don't really consider myself as, as writing the docs, um, but, but, but what we'll do is, is, is break, break it down roughly into three acts you know, a good extended treatment is generally kind of what I use as the document to go on, which will kind of lay out the main sort of story points and the kind of the turns within the series. But then I'll, then I'll kind of rewrite it in the interviews and then the editor will rewrite it again in the edit. So I, I, I personally, some people do script them, but, but I personally like a kind of a, a strong outline and and then and then going on a kind of journey of discovery. I think with observational films, you can't really script it. I mean, you you know, you you, you study your, you get transcripts done if you can afford it, and you study the transcripts and you create a sort of a you know you, you can do a sort of paper edit up to a point with your transcripts, and you can give you a bit of a sort of a roadmap. But I think that you the power of certain bits of testimony and so on is is not on paper; it's only there in the footage. So. Some, you'll find that you, you, you can sort of put something together based on transcripts, and then it's only really when you sit and look at the footage that you have to amend that and adjust it. But you can't, but, I, but that, that's for observational films. I think for past tense stories, you know, there's, there's acres of archive that does have, you know, um, 
uh, text that you know what it is, and so you can you can do you can plan that better basically than observational films. Yeah, unless you're going to pass along the road. Yeah. Hi, thank you very much. It's been very interesting. Um, with films like Grenfell and Stephen, so you build up the trust with contributors. Um, I'm kind of interested in the process, what happens after the film, because you've kind of built these relationships with people and they've told really intimate stories. Um, is there a process after the film has finished or is it, is it just, thank you very much? I'm just interested in that kind of aftercare element of it? Uh, well, in, my, uh, um, in the case of Grenfell, um, no, there is, a, there is a relationship that, that lasts afterwards, and certainly up to the point of transmission of the programme, um, because there's usually a bit of a space there, you know, um, and there's quite often a bit of anxiety about the forthcoming film and so on, and, um, and that is something that you have to factor in at the beginning of the project, in, and you have to make some sort of provision for, for that. In some cases, you have to make provision for um, you, have to, you have to sort of manage the experience for them and you have to manage their expectations as well. It's very important to manage people's expectations along the way because quite often people will sit down and be interviewed for hours and their, their contribution ends up being two or three bits. And it's, I think it's absolutely essential right at the outset to say, now you know there's a lot of voices in this film and, you know, and, and, and people feel a lot happier once they know that the weight of the expectation is not on their shoulders, that they're just one of many voices. That's the, the first thing. Secondly, I, I always take my lead from contributors after the project's over. There's lots of people that I've met over the years who I'm still friends with, and Facebook is great for that because they're spread all over the place. Um, but you can't be friends with people if they're not interested in being friends with you, and you don't want to be anyway. So if people, you, you hopefully, you know, it depends what sort of films you make, but, you know, it, it, we're not, if you make investigative films that are sort of turning people over and stuff, then you're not likely to be friends with them afterwards. But if you're making a film like <coughs> Grenfell, then you, know, you do go on a bit of a journey with people, and you like to think that if they've trusted you and then you, you end up with a film that they, they like, then, then you've developed some sort of relationship with them. Now, that, that fades, obviously, over time. In the case of Grenfell, I'm still friends with quite a lot of people there. And we'll just sort of see how that plays out, but it's a sort of a case-by-case -case thing. I don't think you have a kind of a set template for this is how you, how you handle it. You know. Have you anything to add, James, mm -hmm. there? Uh, yeah, I, th I think it's, it's very important to keep talking to your contributors unless they don't want to be um, spoken to because they are, it's a lot of it exposure and you have to be mindful of, of that. That's quite a big impact. And I, I would say that, that I think he, you have to have a certain amount, take a certain amount of responsibility in these situations. It's, it's not always perfect, but, but in the, the situation of Dwayne, for example, you know, when he, he talks about the trauma, we went on to make another film with him about the trauma of being a witness to a stabbing. And you know, I speak to Doreen and all, all the people, and Stephen, you know, did, who've, who've been sort of in communication, we've, we, we've maintained communication. Okay. Um, oh, front row. We, we can move beyond the front row. Off can, the front. I, can I just follow up on that, though, and just ask, what are you actually um, asking, getting from those contributors right from the outset? Are they signing some kind of release form? I mean, are, are, is it a one-page legal document when you don't really know where your film is going? What, just what are you getting from them right from the outset, just in brief? 
typically you 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 get consent with them after having filmed with them for the first time, and then it depends on the project. You might you might it might be in the case of um, people suffering from mental health problems, for example, you might need to revisit the consent process further down the road if their health deteriorates and so on, whether they have the capacity to continue to give consent to something. But normally it's a, it's a reasonably standard agreement that, that lays out what the, the, how the material, it basically affords the production company, because David's probably better versed in this sort of stuff, having a, got a company, but, but, it's, but it's, it, it, what might end up, what the footage might end up being, where it might be present, where it might not be present, and so on. Um, what, you, what, what you can't really do in, in the case of Grenfell or some other films that I've made is sort of say, you've got to sign on the dotted line. People quite often take the form away, they study it, they quite often don't sign it for months on end, and then eventually when you've built up uh, a, a relationship and they've had time to, to, to look at it, then they will sign it. But what's clear from the outset is they don't have editorial control over how the contribution is used. What they will have is an opportunity to correct any factual inaccuracies, and if there's anything that's not fair in it, they'll be allowed to address those as well. But right from the get-go, you establish what the relationship is, and that is that you are trusting us to do the right job here, uh, and if you don't, and if you've got any doubts, then don't get involved. And, and uh, essentially, that's what the re release form lays out. Um, oh, sorry, Susie, do you want to just... I can't see. There's a gentleman here. It would be instructive to know whether each of you made a taster tape and how long it took from when you pitched the idea till you got a green light for a full production budget. There wasn't a taster for Stephen, and I think it was about nine months from beginning to end when it got commissioned. Yeah, we, we had a taster that was basically a blank screen and a couple of instructions of what you might look at, so... We knew it was quite a hot sell. But um, actually, to, to sell it to the contributors, the idea that we were going to have someone else play them, um, we did that ourselves, which was very strange. So just, you know, one night I just got the words and mimed it and then played it to the person and mm. said, there you go, it's going to be someone better than me doing it. But she found quite a relief. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we cut a little uh, taste of tape. Uh, I think from memory... Uh, there's a scene of uh, Bashar and Asma Assad meeting the Queen, where the microphone's left up. And the Queen says, I hear you've been having a very busy time. Oh, that's kind of a weird, surreal moment. And, uh, and we just kind of showed that there was archive there, basically. And it got commissioned within a few weeks. Uh, yeah, we, we didn't have a uh, taste because it's live. So uh, we just talked about it. And uh, we had a, a huge amount of trust, actually, from uh, the channel. And it's helpful that I just left the channel and been a commissioning editor there, so there was good, uh, a strong relationship. And then we just kind of ran with it. And then, and, you know, when there isn't a taste, I think you just keep talking to the commissioner and you just say, you yeah, know, this is what's going on, this is what we're doing. And, it's, you know, it's a conversation. That, and the creative collaboration goes that way as well. So everyone's all joined up. You don't want it to be too polished either sometimes, do you? And to just have the spirit of the film, yeah. rather than this is the definitive. It's like look at the possibilities. I think. Yeah, and with Grenfell, we didn't. We had rushes. We showed. Right. We just showed a selection of rushes. Um, we showed um, uh, about three or four different scenes. One was a, a big public meeting. One was um, just some aftermath of the fire. One was about volunteers, and it, it it gave a sense of the different places the film would be located. And 
and it was commissioned on the basis. Well, it was sort of commissioned on the basis of that. But there must have been lots of people who were going to channels with just that bit. Yeah. Those things. So, what do you think propelled yours forward? Uh, I think the thing was that Minnow Films, as a production company, started filming on the day of the fire. So they basically had their own material that was shot there, like while the building was on fire. And I don't know that anybody else had that. Plus, it was a very good company, and you've done amazing mm. films yeah. for them. I mean, yeah. it was the reputation. Yeah. No, that's Combination, right. isn't it? Yeah. The yeah. The company was trusted to, to, to do it well. Yeah. yeah. But I think there was one other, there was one other, I think there was BBC Studios mm -hmm. were also um, hoping to get a commission as well, and, the, and the, it, it was Minnow that got the commission. Yeah. Um, we've got time for one more question. Hi. Um, hi, my name is Bernard. I'm a freelance self-shooting director and editor with uh, six years' experience in the video, and, uh, video production industry and aspiring to be a documentarian. How does one make the transition from video to TV without TV credits? It's a bit of a catch-22. You can't get work without credits, and you can't, um, you can't get credits without the work. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Do you want to take that one? Um, well, I mean... I, um, just from a really broad perspective, I'd say you always keep your eye on the prize of where you want to be, but um, just be nimble in your choices. If you want to be working in a, a particular company, then just get into that company um, and just keep your eye on where you want to end up, but don't be so purist that you exclude yourself from other ways of getting in there. So that may be doing something slightly different to what you think is your core key skill. It may be do it taking a bit of a sidestep. Um, but, you, you know, if you want to be in the room where the conversations are happening, you've got to get in the room before you can be part of the conversation. Thank you very much. I don't know if that's helpful. Uh, I think it's really difficult. I mean, I, I, you know, I think that, that you can make films yourself. It sounds like you know how to do that. And the best thing that you can really do is make something that demonstrates what you can do and then just try and get people to see it. I mean, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how you do that. You can put it on YouTube and send people links or whatever. I don't know, but I think that, I think that convincing people verbally is really tough. And now what you can do is you can demonstrate what you can do. And that's, even if it's a powerful three-minute something that captures someone's, that, 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 that then gets you in the door, as Ninda says, that you can then sit down with somebody and then you can talk, talk through what you want to do. I think it's about, it's about showing that you have filmmaking chops, you know, that you, you're somebody who's credible as a filmmaker. And, and it's, it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult thing to do. But I think perhaps the best thing to do is to try and create something that, that, that is striking and try and get people to see it and then start a conversation. I think also it, it, it's worth thinking that it's the same process. You've got to imagine that we're constantly selling films as well. And so we're, we're constantly going through that process of trying to persuade. I mean, as Ben was saying, that Minnow and BBC Studios are kind of both trying to make their Grenfell film. And who, who are you going to choose between those, those two, uh, you know, very reputable places? So, so the things that sell, sell documentaries are good stories that people kind of that have a familiarity for the broadcaster so they feel an audience will come to it. Access, unique piece of access that you could potentially figure out. And then a kind of a proof of concept, which, which can be a treatment, but, but these days is more likely to be a taster. So if you've got the skills to sort of say, okay, well, this story over here is gonna be an amazing story, and I can put a three-minute tape together, 
then, and, and you think that three-minute tape is genuinely very, very strong, you can then kind of use that as a sort of a, a battering ram in, into the industry. But you've got to think about making, if you're going to production companies or even to commissioners, you've got to make their lives easy because they're selling to someone else internally. So, you know, it's, it's quite a challenging process. You're, not, you're never actually selling to the person you're selling to. You're selling to many more people and ultimately uh, an audience. Great. Well, um, sorry, we're going to cut it off there. But um, I'm sure some of these guys are going to be hanging around in the bar for a bit if you've got any other questions. But, I mean, just to echo what David was saying earlier, I think the, the range of material and the range of projects is just fantastic. Um, so congratulations and thank you very much, all of you. Thank you.